Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. I'm going to read. We're going to start by reading this passage, uh, this section of Scripture. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18. Uh, If you're uh, keeping track at home, uh, this is sermon number 14 in Matthew of an anticipated 86. So at this point in time, it's a race to see which will finish first, our series in Matthew or the pandemic. So that's how we're going. Matthew 6, verse 1. Follow along as I read. This is what Holy Scripture says. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, if you're looking right now for the lines, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, they're not in your text because they were not originally in Matthew. They were lines that were added when we started, uh, when the early church started using this prayer and repeating it together in unison for worship purposes. Uh, that was, those lines were added as a fitting edit, ending to the prayer in public worship. So um, uh, the second or third century, very, a very long time ago, those lines started to be added, but they were not originally part of this. Fine for liturgical use. Don't stick them in here in red letters in your Bible, though. Anyway, let's keep going. Verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you found the commands of Jesus that we have discussed so far from the Sermon on the Mount about anger and lust and loving your enemies, if you found those commands difficult, I have bad news for you. Jesus cares about not just what you do, but why you do it too. 
Not just your actions and your thoughts and your deeds, but your motives. It is very possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. And if you do that, you do not measure up to the standards that Jesus sets down here in this passage. In fact, the greatest temptation that Jesus addresses here that you will face is to do good things for the approval of other people. And if you succumb to that, you, have, uh, you are in pursuit of the wrong sort of reward. In 2001, there was a restaurant in Panama City, Florida that announced a contest for its wait staff. It said that the waitress who sells the most beer in a month to its customers will win a Toyota. And the wait staff was very excited about this, so they started working on this. And uh, the winner at the end of the month was Jody Benny. She won, and on the appointed day, they uh, blindfolded her and led her out to the parking lot where she expected to see a Toyota. Instead, she got a toy. Yoda, a Star Wars action figure, not the car that she was expecting. She quit her job and sued. Uh, they settled, they settled the, course, uh, the, the case and they were not allowed to uh, talk about it, but one of the attorneys told a newspaper reporter that she got enough money to go get any Toyota off any lot she wants. Hmm. Here's the warning from Jesus. This is the warning from Jesus. You might be doing something similar, not selling beer, but in your giving and praying and fasting, you might be in pursuit of the wrong sort of prize too. Pick your prize. Don Carson says, here is an example in the scriptures of the extent to which our brokenness, our sin, how deeply it goes into our hearts and minds. We can take these commands that the Lord Jesus has given us these commands that reflect a beautiful life, and we can look at them and say to ourselves, wow, if I really was that sort of person, do you know how much people would admire me? Do you know what sort of reputation I have if I lived this sort of life? Wow, people would be really impressed with me. That's how deeply embedded sin is in us, that we can see beautiful things and turn it into ashes. Now, we're going to approach this text, and I want to talk about these 18 verses with you today. But we're going to approach, uh, I want to talk about approaching the text, how we think about it first, and under three headings, just to organize our thoughts here. First, I want to talk with you about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. This is something that we visit almost every week. A question that we have when we take up any text in the Bible is, why is this here? Why did Matthew include this here? The Gospels, Matthew and the rest of the Gospel writers, did not just collect random stories about Jesus or random sermons and cram them together in a book. Matthew has things he wants you to think and believe about the Lord Jesus. Why is this section of Scripture, why is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew? Now, to answer that question, of course, we're going to go to the end of Matthew, these verses that I've showed you several times. Sean O'Donnell, a pastor in Illinois, I believe, thinks that this verse, these set of verses, give us a clue to the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and its contents and the four alls that are here in this passage. Matthew 28, Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all of my commands, everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
So the key emphasis, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount from this has to do with authority, Jesus' authority. Who has the authority to speak for God? Jesus does. Who can tell you how to live? Jesus can. Who can correct you? Jesus can. Who can instruct you? Jesus can. The reason I think authority is so important to the Sermon on the Mount is because of what's said in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7 of Matthew. Look at Matthew 7, 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus has all authority, the authority to speak for God. And the way that Matthew lays this out in particular here and in the rest of the book too is by way of contrast. Contrast between Jesus and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, and Jesus. They're different. Um, Occasionally, I hear sportscasters enter into one of the debates about who is the goat. The goat, the greatest of all time. Who's the goat? They have this discussion every now and then. They have to do, when you have uh, ESPN, ESP1, ESPN2, ESPN3, and ESPN Espanol, you've got to talk about stuff. You've got to fill the airwaves. So they argue about who the goat is. And uh, the debate often comes between these two men. Who's the greatest of all time on the basketball court, Jordan or LeBron James? And the arguments go this way. They compare their statistics. Uh, who has the most points average per game? Who was on a team that had the, the most championships? Who was the MVP uh, the, the most often? That's how the, the debate and the argument goes. Who's the GOAT? At this point in time, I was instructed after the first service that I'm supposed to say with scriptural authority, Jordan. And now we'll move on. <laughs> Who's the GOAT in Matthew? Who's the GOAT in Matthew? Jesus is the goat in Matthew. How do we know? Because of how he compares to the teachers of the law. For example, in chapter 5, how he embodies the law. Uh, The religious leaders, they had rules about keeping the law. The Pharisees had rules to help them keep the law. But you are not going to believe what Jesus wants you to do with God's commands. You're not going to believe how deeply Jesus wants these character, this, this, uh, uh, this reflection of God's character to go into your very heart. You don't know. You can't believe. Jesus wants you to live like God. He wants you to, to embody God's character. Oh, the Pharisees only think they take the law seriously. You just wait till you see what Jesus does with it. And then we come into chapter 6, and there's these acts of righteousness, and we know the Pharisees do them. We see the teachers of the law engaged in it. They for sure know that, that they show us all the time. But, you know, Jesus, he wants us to do these just for God's sake and, and not so anybody else sees. Who has the right to speak for God? Jesus has the right to speak for God. So that's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Second, second heading under which we're going to consider this passage is the righteous life. Chapter 5, as I've already talked about, we, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, it's primarily about your behavior, about your morality, about ethics, about hate and love and lust and anger. Chapter 6, though, is about spiritual disciplines, the discipline of giving and the discipline of praying and the discipline of fasting. And there is a temptation to separate the two as if they're different animals so that somebody might say 
I really think the values of Jesus are important, and I try to follow the values of Jesus, loving your enemies and things like that. I'm not too good at regularly reading the Bible, and my prayer list is kind of short, and I don't make it to church very often, and why would I ever go to a congregational meeting? And, uh, but the values of Jesus, that's really, I embody the values of Jesus. Someone, on the other hand, though, might say, uh, I'm not too good about the values thing, but I got the disciplines down. I'm in church every week. Uh, I, I can rattle off my prayer list. I, I, I can do the things and check them off. Outside of church, it's a little bit different, but I got the, I got the disciplines down. This is, <laughs> this is a, 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 often a Protestant caricature of Roman Catholics because we've seen too many gangster movies. And the gangsters go to church religiously, and then go out and order the execution of their mother-in-law and things like that. So I got the disciplines down, but the, the morals is not so good. Jesus, he will not allow that uh, division. John Stott points this out, even in the language it's used. Look at Matthew 5.20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he talks about the, the morals in, in, in chapter 5. But then in chapter 6, verse 1, do not practice your righteousness, same word, in front of others. These things are, are linked, your disciplines and your behavior. In fact, they, they call for and feed and encourage one another as you practice both of them. They are both acts of righteousness. Now, third category that I want to talk about this, uh, in this passage is the concept of rewards, rewards. This is a key concept in this passage. And again, there's a contrast. You can, Jesus says, do what you do for the approval of others and that will be your reward. Or... You can do what you do in order to please God. Pick your prize. The pattern in this text, you saw probably the pattern in this text. So there is the rewards of religious performance, and Jesus repeats this. About giving, he says in chapter 2, if you're performing for other people, look at the end of verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2, right at the end. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. See, he says the same thing about prayer in chapter, in verse 5, right at the end there. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And I bet you know what verse 16 says about fasting. You fast to impress other people, that's what you'll get, impressed people. And he says, truly, I tell you, your father who sees what is done. Oh, sorry, that's not one it. That's one I, verse 16. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Jesus' preference, though, is that you live not to impress other people, but that you do what you do to please God. And again, he is rep repetitious. The pattern continues. Chapter 6, verse 4. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Given secret, your father will reward you. Verse uh, prayer, verse 6. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then fasting, verse 18. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is not above repetitious patterns. Do what you do to impress other people. That's the reward you'll get. Do what you do to please God. You do get the reward from your father in heaven. He's the one who sees what is done in secret. 
Now, the problem with thinking all this reward talk in this passage is that we are taught to do what we do, not for a reward, but just because it's the right thing to do. We are taught to be good for goodness sake. Um, Immanuel Kant, the Enlightenment professor, uh, uh, a philosopher, uh, uh, made this his, his, you should do what is right, not for any sort of reward, but because it's the right thing to do. And if there's any sort of reward at all in your goodness, then you have ruined the goodness. You must do what is your duty and, and, and be satisfied in the doing of what is good and right and no rewards. There can't be a thought of rewards at all. Our founding fathers, when they were advocating for the passing of the Constitution that was adopted in 1787 in our country, uh, wrote the Federalist Papers, some of them. The Federalist Papers made the argument about the presidency and the, and the members of Congress and the Supreme Court. And, and they said that we, we could have confidence in these men who would serve, men in particular at the time, but men who would serve because they would be disinterested. It was a word they liked to use disinterested. Now, that doesn't mean that they would be bored by their jobs. That's not what they were meant. What they meant was they wouldn't have any interests in the decisions they would be making in Congress or as a president or Supreme Court. They wouldn't have any, there would be no financial gain to them for serving. They wouldn't serve in order to get out of it what they could. Some of you are laughing. You're thinking about your member of Congress, right? So, uh, 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 that, that's that, that these men would be of such virtue that they would serve in a disinterested way. But Jesus here, uh, he's saying, give, pray, fast for the rewards. For the reward of your Father in heaven. Now, what do we do with that? I think that being good for goodness sake fails, and I want to give you three reasons why I think it fails. I think it fails, for, first of all, because it replaces God. It replaces God. Immanuel Kant said, you should aspire to do what is good and to do the good for the sake of goodness. But goodness is not good enough for us who are followers of Jesus because goodness is not our standard. The standard is the glory of God. We want to do what we do for the glory of God, not just for mere generic goodness, but for God's glory to satisfy and please him. Goodness is not a substitute for God. Second, this fails because it reduces faith. Reward is uh, faith and rewards are connected. Look at Hebrews 11.6. This is one of a couple passages I could show this to you, but look at Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith means laying hold of Jesus and laying hold of Jesus driven by the conviction that there is reward in doing so. It makes sense. It's good. There is, there is blessing to be found in laying hold of God. The sort of faith that makes you a Christian is the faith that recognizes that Jesus is our sin bearer who died on the cross in our place, bearing our penalty. And we lay a hold of him and, and God, as we lay a hold of Jesus, gives us life and forgiveness, the reward of trusting in Jesus. So faith, 
Faith and reward are connected. We believe in Jesus because we believe it's, it, there is a joy to be had in believing in him. Third here, though, being good for goodness sake is, uh, uh, fails because it removes affections. Now, I could use the word emotions or feelings here if I wanted to, but affections, I think, will work just as well. Um, Jesus knows human nature better than Immanuel Kant knows human nature. Uh, you do what you do. It is impossible for you to function this way as a rational, emotionless, disinterested person. God is not honored with your merely intellectual, emotionless, uh, disinterested decisions. Just imagine one day if you brought home flowers for your wife and she said, oh, thank you. And you said, I'm just doing my duty. I'm a good husband and that's what good husbands do. I bring flowers because I'm a good husband. She's probably not going to be honored by those flowers. Not at least as honored as she would be if, if you said, babe, I brought them because I love you. Right? God is not honored by your emotionless, intellectual, merely intellectual, uh, disinterested decisions. God is honored when we follow him because we want to follow him. We treasure him. We love him. We want to please him. We want everything he has to offer and everything he promises. Anything that God commands me to do, I want to do. And any promise that God makes, I want I long for those things. So I'm going to do what I'm going to do to please him and for the reward that he offers. Uh, Jesus operated this way. Look at Hebrews 2, 12, 2. Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's a command to us. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now here, notice why Jesus does what he does. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to give, I want to pray, I want to fast in secret for the joy that God has set down for his reward to please him. Now the challenge here involved in this is that you probably, I don't, I know I have this problem, you probably have this problem too, you don't really understand the full breadth and length and depth of the reward that God offers those who follow him. You probably don't have the spiritual capacity for it. In fact, that's one of the reasons the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians prayed. He prayed that the Ephesians would know the blessings of the inheritance that God has offered us in the Lord Jesus. Tim Keller wants you to picture it this way. He, he says, imagine an eight-year-old boy who is playing with his truck and his truck breaks. Crumbs, he comes to you crying, my truck, my truck, fix my truck. And you look at it and it is irreparable. This truck cannot be fixed. So you tell him, I'm sorry, bud, this, this, this is not going to be able to be. Oh, my truck, he laments. But you say, well, uh, the good news is we just got a letter in the mail and your great-great-uncle who you don't know uh, just passed away and he left you $100 million. And that little boy still says, but my truck, my truck is broken. Because an eight-year-old boy does not have the capacity to understand the significance of $100 million. And Jesus in Matthew 6 and Paul in the book of Ephesians says, blessings from God 
riches of blessings from God, and we say, but the approval of other people, my reputation, what other people think of me? The Spirit is at work, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit is at work in your life to show you the value of the Father's reward. Now, we don't have much time left, but I want to talk about these three uh, uh, um, disciplines that uh, Jesus mentions here. We're going to start by talking about giving. Now, giving was an important duty in Judaism. Uh, a healthy society provides for the, the least and the lost. There's a safety net that even in Jesus' day, you were expected in a town to contribute if you were able to the needs of the poor and the widows and the orphans. And uh, the problem was there were people who cared more about their reputation for giving than they did actually about the poor. This is the um, first century equivalent of virtue signaling. I'm going to signal my virtue, and I want everybody to know that I give. It's, it's Jesus, so he says in verse 2, so when you give to the needy, do, announce it with, do not announce it with trumpets. It's hard to tell if Jesus is making a joke there. It seems like he maybe is. When it's time for you to give, don't hire a marching band to follow you. You march down the street, da, 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 I'm going to give right now. And you carry your bags of money, so everybody knows it's a parade, here I go to give. Or, now maybe he's just joking, or maybe he's thinking about the giving jars that they had in the, the, tab, uh, the temple at the time. Large giving jars, they'd be made of brass or some sort of metal, and, and it was not uncommon for the religious leaders to get their offering, so let's say they'd take a, 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 and get it in the smallest coins that they possibly could, so they'd have a lot of them, and when it came time to give, they would put it in those uh, brass uh, uh, containers and announce they're giving with trumpets. It's like uh, if when we pass the offering plates again someday, maybe, uh, and uh, you decide to bring your offering in nickels and the offering is like, and you put them in and the people next to you are, ah, here we go, here we go. How much was this offering this week? About 15 pounds, right? Hmm. Don't give for the attention, Jesus says. Secret. Secret. Now, this is not simple, what Jesus is saying, as we apply it. Well, there's simple um, manifestations of it. So every single one of us has received a, a letter from some ministry trying to raise money, trying to build a building, and they say, if you give to this building, we'll put your name up in the building on a plaque in the, by the door, and you could be a gold sponsor, a silver sponsor, a bronze sponsor, we'll, we'll put your name up. Uh, when uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe my alma mater was trying to build a new chapel and they wanted the alumni to contribute in particular to the foyer of the chapel. And they said, if you're an alumnus and you give to the chapel, we'll put your name up in the lobby. So we donated, not very much. Our name went on a post-it note in the back of a bathroom stall, but our name was there. You got to believe though. That, okay, so they, they built the chapel and when I went back to visit the, the construction, uh, completed construction project, you know what I did. I went to the chapel, I went to the lobby, and I found my name. Truly, you have received your reward, Divinity. You've been paid in full. Uh, sometimes those same colleges and seminaries and ministries, so they'll, they'll, they come along and they say, hey, um, we're going to name this building after you, and your name's going to go on it. 
And we want to do it as an expression of thanks. Is that okay? Seems so. I mean, uh, if there are people who have the gift of giving in the church, there are people who have the gift of leadership, there are people who have the gift of service, gift of teaching. I thank people who have the gift of service, and I try to thank people who have the gift of teaching for teaching. I thank people who have the gift of encouragement for encouraging others. Is it okay to thank people who have the gift of giving for their giving? I don't think that what Jesus says here eliminates uh, letting the financial secretary know what your giving is so that, that she or he can give you uh, tax-deductible uh, tax receipts. I don't think Jesus is eliminating that here. He's just warning us about the dangers, how dangerous it is that other people know how much you give and that you give. It's actually dangerous that you know how much you give. I'm not advocating bad accounting, but look here what he says. Verse 3, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How's that possible? You have to have a lobotomy for this to work right. Uh, the, the problem is, you may give for the congratulations of others and be very careful about congratulating yourself too and thinking about how you're a champion giver. No reward from yourself, no reward from others, just a reward from fa your Father who sees what is done in secret. Now let's talk about prayer. We can go on here as we talk about prayer. Again, you can pray for the approval of others and for the admiration of others. There was, at this time, a specific time for prayer. There were hours in which you were supposed to specifically pray. Uh, three o'clock would be one of them in the afternoon. So there's a miracle in the Gospel of Acts, Book of Acts, Peter and John are going to the temple, it says, at the hour of prayer, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The church met during the hour of prayer there daily to pray together. Now, if prayer time is at 3 o'clock, imagine the teacher of the law, one of the religious leaders. I just couldn't help it. I mean, I was out at the busiest intersection of town at 3 o'clock, and it's the hour of prayer, and you know you have to pray. Wherever you are, you should pray. And I just happened to be at the busiest intersection of town. Can I really help it? Jesus says, you can help it. You can go home and shut the door. Right? Don't pray for the public attention of everyone. Uh, pray in secret where the Father is and where the Father knows, and he'll reward you. Then Jesus, Matthew records for us this extended discussion of prayer that Jesus has here. Why? It's not strictly necessary. Jesus has already made his point about uh, performing uh, your acts of righteousness in front of others. Uh, Matthew, a uh, prayer is really important to Matthew. He talks about prayer more than any of the other gospel writers. And the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Lord's Prayer here is actually right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, as if it, as if it is the the root from which the rest of this grows. Uh, Jesus issues another warning. Don't think you'll be heard because of your many words. And then he gives this model prayer, this pattern for us. We could go through it in a number of ways. What I'm interested in thinking about is how do these prayer requests, how does this prayer fit into whatever things Jesus has already been talking about, uh, doing your righteousness in front of others? Six requests he makes. Hallowed be your name. God, act in such a way today that we revere your name. I pray this often at my house, and I, uh, I pray this for our church. I pray this for my own life. 
Wouldn't this be good for you to pray this week for your school? God, act in such a way this week in my school, in my home, that we revere your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Jesus is coming back someday. It could be any time. And uh, usher in this kingdom. We want it to be soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. May your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And then there's this turning point. So we go from God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, to my daily bread. Forgiveness and spiritual protection. Notice the contrast here. The contrast. Don't give for the honor of your name because we want God's name to be revered. Let's not put my name on a plaque. Let's let God's name be great. Let's not build my kingdom. Let's let's let God's kingdom be magnified. Not my and, and if God's name is great, all I need is bread for today. God's name matters so much to me that, it, that all I need, all I need is today's bread as long as God's name is great. Not mine, but God's name. You see that contrast? We live for another world. We live for the pleasure of God and not for the approval of other people. My request about my life are very small in comparison to this vision of, of God's greatness. Let his name be revered. Let his kingdom come. Let his will be done. And all I need is bread for today. That's how I think this prayer fits into uh, uh, this uh, passage. The warning, some of you might have questions about the warnings in verses 14 and 15. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your father will forgive you. If you do not forgive their, others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Your attitude, we'll come back to this because this is the point in one of the parables that Jesus told. Your, your attitude, your willingness to forgive others is a sign that you have received grace from God already and that you are in a position to receive the grace of forgiveness from him. That's what he's saying. Now, last discipline here, fasting. Again, you can fast for the approval of others. What's interesting here is Jesus expects us to fast. He expects us to fast. When you fast, in the Bible, people fast to mourn for sin. They fast as an act of discipline. Your flesh needs to get beaten down. And we fast as an act of desperation sometimes. In the last couple of years that he's been the chairman of the Board of Elders, Jeff Mindler has often called the elders to fast for various issues in the church. We fast to say to God, we are desperate for you to work in this situation. We care more about your work in this situation than we do about lunch. We're desperate. Please hear us. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, fasted twice a week, Monday and Thursday. It's hard to avoid the temptation of thinking that they chose Monday and Thursday because Monday and Thursday were market days when everybody would come to town and there the Pharisees would be fasting. So hungry. So hungry. Jesus says, wash your face. Uh, put oil on your head. Make yourself look healthy and good. Hide what you're doing because your father who sees what, in see, is, sees what is done in secret will reward you. Pick your prize. Whose approval do you want? 
whose approval matters to you. Let your giving, let your praying, let your fasting be like an iceberg, most of it out of view. There's a book that was written several years ago by a man by the name of Stephen Roy. It's called What God Thinks When We Fail. And it's about, uh, and he, he tells a story in this book about a, a violinist. It's a, it's a fictional story. There's a young man several years ago in London who was a violinist. He was very skilled. Uh, rumors about him spread among the artistic community. And they were just rumors because even though this young man was highly skilled, a, a virtuoso a player, he uh, had terrible stage fright and refused to do public concerts. But a few people had heard him, and some of his teachers over the years would talk about this great skill. Well, eventually, somebody persuaded him to do a concert. The concert was scheduled. Tickets were sold. The night of the concert, that he showed up, kind of a sweaty mess, and the crowd, the auditorium was full of people. He walked down on stage to play, and he looked and saw the crowd, and there he was all by himself. There's no orchestra, nobody else, no pianist. And he started playing his violin. And, and within the first five minutes, everyone in that room knew this was going to be a night not to forget. The critics that were there from the newspaper uh, and, and reviewers, they, they were there with their pens and paper. And, and pretty soon after those, those first five minutes, they put them down and thought, this is not the time for analysis. This is the time for rapturous enjoyment. For 90 minutes... This young man played uh, song after song. It was beautiful. That he, he filled the, the interpretation of his music, and his skill was astounding. When he was finished, the last, the last note that he played was echoing, filling the concert hall. The applause started. People jumped to their feet, and they shouted and screamed and applauded. and They were amazed, and they, they, this ovation went on and on. And while they were clapping, this young man who was standing there with his violin, he, he looked. He was just, he, no response, really, at all, except he was just looking, looking in the crowd until he spotted something up in the balcony, and, he, and suddenly he smiled, and he bowed deeply, and walked off the stage. When he got to the backstage, the, the stage crew said, that was an awesome concert, and they said, but what, what happened out there? Why were you just standing there for so long and just looking in the crowd? And young man said, a couple of years ago, my master teacher uh, retired and moved out of London. And I heard that he was coming to the concert tonight. And the whole concert, I was looking for him in the crowd, and I, I couldn't see him. But finally, at the end there, I found him high in the balcony, and he was standing up, and he had a smile on his face and applauding me. And after I saw him, I was finally able to relax. Because I said to myself, if the master is pleased with what I've done, then everything else is okay. May God make that true in your mind and your heart. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we are thankful to you for the Lord Jesus, the authority that he brings and the insight that he has, the truth that he uh, lays before us, he who is our great teacher and our great Savior, our Master and Lord. Father, we do confess to you the depth of our sin, that we do take this beautiful life that you have described for us in your word, and we 
turn it into a way to magnify ourselves and to show other people how good we are. We do it not just with these disciplines, but we do it with our other skills that we have. Father, we even try to use our humility to impress other people. Oh, how we confess to you that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Thank you for your mercy and your grace that you forgive us, not just for the wrong actions that we have done, but you forgive us for our crooked and twisted motives too. Lord, help us. This is not the only place in the Bible that talks about our motives. And Lord, some of us are given toward morbid introspection. And, and, and we'll, we'll pound ourselves repeatedly thinking, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? What are you doing this for? Save us from that. And, and save us too from performing of giving and praying and fasting to please other people and not you. Magnify in our minds and hearts the supremacy of pleasing you and pursuing the rewards that you have for us. You see what is done in secret that terrifies us and it delights us. May we live to please you, we pray. Help us. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.